Mark chapter 1. Unfortunately, Mark chapter 1 is filled with these little chunks. So it'll take a while to get us through Mark chapter 1. If you're looking at your notes, if you're one of those people, um, you'll notice some slight changes. Hopefully that will help you understand what I'm doing. (laughs) Um, So, uh, verses 14 and 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, here we have commands. Help us to understand the context. Be at work by your Spirit to enable us to see, to grasp, to believe, to repent and as much as we need to. Um, Help us to understand your word, and not only understand your word, but understand how to communicate your word to others, to whom we know this is pertinent. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. We are, as you may have noticed, a nation of immigrants. We don't all look alike. And uh, some of us still have accents, um, not all of us, but we often have different traditions within our communities. What we have to remember is that people are immigrants for a reason. They don't just decide one day to up and move and leave everyone that they know and everyone that they love. But there are reasons that this happens. Sometimes it's about safety. There are conditions that produce um, great danger within a community and people need to leave that community to go to a place that they think will be safer for them. Sometimes it's about prosperity, that there are no opportunities in a place. And the people um, still need to eat and so they they want to find a place where they can work and they can eat. What we should also realize is that those situations, those circumstances, don't usually arrive or arise in a vacuum. But oftentimes, who's in charge matters a great deal about whether people are safe or whether people can eat. Well, we're talking about the change of a kingdom this morning. And so those questions are semi-pertinent as we think about this. Jesus came to a real place, to a real people, in a very real time uh, that had some very real problems. And one of the first problems that we see is when we read the beginning of verse 14. Now, after John was arrested. That's really not what you probably expected to hear when you've already been introduced to the reality of John the baptizer. Uh, He's out there baptizing people for the repentance of sin, um, making the straight the way before the Lord, preparing people for the coming of the Messiah. And so the next thing you uh, read after having baptized Jesus uh, would not probably be John being arrested. And yet here we have John being arrested. 
being handed into the custody of the governmental authorities. And Mark uh, really doesn't elaborate on this like some of the other gospel writers elaborate on this. But he wants us to understand, I believe, that John has fulfilled his role. He has prepared the way. He has revealed who the Messiah is. And so his role being done, now he finds himself in prison. Why he's in prison is uh, fairly important. And why he's not in prison, or the reason he's not in prison. Yeah, that made sense at some point. Uh, also kind of matters. He's not in jail because Jesus did something to him. That Jesus was threatened by John and therefore made sure that uh, he um, framed John for something. So you get rid of a potential competitor. But what we see when we see the larger uh, testimony of the Scriptures, as well as uh, what we find in some of the historians of that day, is that John was imprisoned for exposing Herod's sin. He began to speak out against the king of the Jews. Herod had taken his brother's wife, and his brother was still alive. And so, uh, if you're going to be king over the Jews, then you should be following the laws of the Jews, and Herod was not following the laws of the Jews. And so this did put Herod in a bit of a precarious uh, situation vis-a-vis the people he ruled, who were largely, but not exclusively, Jewish. Herod, of course, did not like hearing about his sin, and so he had John arrested. John was imprisoned in the, the castle at Machaerus, and we've got a little map here, because most of you probably have no idea where that is. Okay, so here's our little map. And John, of course, was doing his ministry north of the Dead Sea, uh, up along the Jordan River. And here we have down along the Dead Sea, on the eastern side, outside of Israel, is the castle where John is being imprisoned by Herod. It was one of the places of his power. Herod's uh, territory was that area that is east of the Dead Sea, east of the Jordan River, and then eventually kind of curves over into Galilee. And so Herod uh, puts John in prison there until John ends up being executed. Uh, That's a different story for a different day. But we see that it is Herod who rises up against John. Jesus is not trying to get rid of his competition. But there is a shift that does take place amongst the people of God as a result of the actions of this, in many ways, godless king, Herod. And so the very next thing that Mark talks about is, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem, but Jesus did leave the region around the Jordan River and moved up back into Galilee, which is where he was raised. Galilee, another map for us, the northern territory of of, uh, Israel. It was one of the places where the, the Canaanites were not completely dispossessed, okay, in the time of the judges. Okay, the time of Joshua and then into the Judges. And what we see taking place up in Galilee is 
the intermarriage between the remaining Canaanites and the Jews that were there. And so what we had is sort of a uh, mixed community of Jew and Gentile uh, there in, in what was called Galilee. So when Solomon wants to build his temple, and he wants to get all of this timber from uh, Hiram, the king of Tyre, he decides to give him Galilee. And so for a while anyway, uh, Galilee was under the authority of the nation of Tyre or Phoenicia. Later it would revert back to the power of uh, the, the realm of Israel, but we see that now it's under the power of Herod. But it's a Jew and Gentile community. Both are represented there. Now what's different between the Samaritans who also intermarried and the Jews that were up in Galilee is that the Jews in Galilee were ordinary Jews, so to speak. They accepted all of the Old Testament, whereas the Samaritans only accepted the Pentateuch, the first five books. And of course, in, the, in Jesus' famous exchange with the, woman, the Canaanite woman, or the Samaritan woman, rather, in John 4, we see that the Samaritans worshipped on one mountain, whereas the Jews worshipped in Jerusalem. Well, the Jews in Galilee would go down to Jerusalem like they were commanded during all of the feast days. In fact, that really sets up the pattern of most of the Gospels. Jesus spends most of his time up in Galilee, but in the feast days, he and all of the Jews with him would go down to Jerusalem to worship properly. So that's how the Galilean Jews were very different from the Samaritan Jews. Okay, and their expression and understanding of who God is, what was Scripture, and how to practice their faith. And so Jesus is engaging in ministry in Galilee. And he's making known this good news to not just Jew, but also Gentile. And so we're going to find that reality uh, throughout the Gospel of Mark. He's going to speak not just to Jews, but he, and he's going to speak in synagogues, but there are also going to be encounters with Gentile people which is perfectly understandable when you recognize that this gospel is being written to the Romans who were largely Gentile people, though not exclusively. But it's good news. Evangelion, evangel, the evangel. And this really spoke to something that was used in a broader sense in, in uh, the Greek language. Uh, Tim Keller notes that it meant uh, history-making, life-shaping news, as opposed to just sort of daily news. It was something that changed your life, presumably, for the rest of your life. And so Jesus is a herald of this good message that, is being, uh, that, he's, that he's preaching, and it is associated with a life-changing event. Now, we read from Isaiah 52, and that, that there's that picture there of the person who's running to deliver the good news of the victory of battle. And of course, one of the most famous uh, historical accounts of such a thing is the Battle of Marathon between the Greeks and the Persians. This was uh, the first Persian invasion of Greece, or first attempt, anyway, at the Persian, uh, by the Persians to invade Greece. And it was done during the reign of Darius, whom is one of those biblical guys. 
Okay, you read the Old Testament, you're going to find Darius. Well, Darius had designs on Greece, and so he sent an army to try and conquer Greece, and Athens rose up to try and thwart his attempts. Sparta decided that it wasn't really necessary at this point in time because they were enjoying a religious festival, and so we have an epic battle that takes place outside of the city of Marathon. And what happens is the Greeks actually win. They repel the Persians and drive them back into the sea and back to Persia, and that basically ended the, uh, the first attempt at invasion by Persia. Darius would die before the Persians would start again. But we have the story, possibly apocryphal, who knows, of the man running the approximately 26 miles to tell the people of Athens uh, that victory has been won. And he's reported to have said, you are not slaves, but free. Because that's what the Persians were going to do, enslave them. And so it wasn't just the news of a battle that was far away, but it was the good news uh, that the battle that was won for you means that you're free. That you have no fear at this point in time. And that's the kind of news that Jesus is making known. News of freedom. We, we see in Isaiah 52 that, that it's about peace. We see, uh, as Mark read, that it was about happiness. It's about salvation, precisely because of what we, what we hear there, our God reigns. That there is a redemption that was going to be accomplished by God for His people. And that is the, the message of the good news that we see in Isaiah 52. And I believe that is the good news that we are meant to understand that Mark is talking about here in the first chapter of his Gospel. Because Jesus says, the time is fulfilled, or the time has come to completion. The kingdom of God is at hand. We've been waiting for it, and it's here. It's finally here. God's appointed time. The prophecy, not just Isaiah 52, but so many others, that prophecy was about to be fulfilled through the earthly ministry of Jesus. Jesus begins, to, begins the kingdom with His earthly ministry, and then it's going to grow until He returns. And so there is an already reality of the kingdom. It has already begun, and it's already growing, but it has not yet come to completion there's still some things that need to be brought about. But Jesus wants the people of Galilee, and by extension wants you to know that the kingdom is at hand, it is here, it is coming. And there's nothing that can stop it. As Jesus said elsewhere, the gates of hell cannot prevail against the kingdom. This is not an earthly kingdom though Jesus was on earth. It's not a kingdom that has borders. It's not a kingdom that has walls. It's not a kingdom, that, kingdom that's concerned about geography. In fact, as we see, the kingdom spreads throughout the totality of the earth. It's on almost all of the continents. I guess I could say it's in Antarctica because there is the possibility that some of the people who are in Antarctica as scientists are actually Christians. But it covers now the face of the earth. What started in Galilee and Jerusalem 
has spread to cover not just the Roman Empire, but now it covers the whole world. The kingdom of God, as Paul says, is not about eating and drinking, but it's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which echoes in a lot of ways what we see in Isaiah 52. This kingdom that Jesus is bringing in is fundamentally different from any kingdom on earth. As we'll see, I think, in a bit. Because it is God's kingdom, and because it is also called the kingdom of His beloved Son in Colossians 1, we see that it is opposed to the kingdom of darkness, as we find in Colossians 1. And so Jesus is at war with another kingdom. It's just not Rome. It transcends Rome. It transcends Persia. It transcends Greece. It's the kingdom of darkness. But I want us to remember that the message of the kingdom of the beloved Son is good news. That's the first thing I want you to get. I want you to understand. The message of the kingdom of the beloved Son is good news. And that means it's life-changing. Maybe I should have said that. The message of the kingdom is life-changing. There's a bonus point for you today as we think about this text. In Athens, when they received the news of the Battle of Marathon, what they did is they had a great sacrifice and party and established an annual festival. And so they were sacrificing to the gods and uh, the... The story sort of goes is they were, wanted to offer one animal for every Persian that was killed, but they didn't know how many Persians were killed. There was too numerous uh, because the battle was such a great victory. And so they decided 500 animals a year until they you know, uh, got to the, the total. But anyway, their response to the kingdom, so to speak, the good news was sacrifice to their gods. Jesus talks here about a proper response to the kingdom that he's preaching. And the first part of this response to the fact that Jesus reigns is repent. Interesting. Jesus says, repent. Turn around. Change your mind. Uh, Change your lifestyle. There's another kind of way of putting that. Because you're coming out of the kingdom of darkness, which you have entered thanks to Adam's rebellion, and because you are in the kingdom of darkness and fulfilling the the will of the prince of the power of the air, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were under the death penalty. You were condemned for your rebellion against the maker of heaven and earth. Repent. We see in Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And so repentance is about confessing our transgressions and forsaking our transgressions. 
recognizing that's not the way I ought to live. That's not the way God wants me to live and beginning to change. We see in the preaching of the gospel in Acts 17 where Paul is in Athens, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And so we can't limit this command to the people in Galilee that heard the voice of Jesus, for Paul says, all men everywhere. Africa, Asia, South America, North America, Europe. Australia, Antarctica, all men everywhere, Jew and Gentile, white, black, red, yellow, whatever it is, all men and women everywhere are called to repent because of this life-changing news that the kingdom has come. They're to turn around They're to stop going the wrong way and begin to go the right way. What this implies is that our fundamental problem is that people are independent, that they are wanting to be autonomous, a rule or law unto themselves. They want to determine their own future. They want to determine their own values. They want to say what's right and what's wrong and not be accountable to anybody. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to be told how to live. There's a song by the Soup Dragons, which is one of the weirdest band names that I've probably ever come across. And I did not realize until this morning that the song was actually a Rolling Stones song. But I'm free to do what I want any old time. Because I'm free to be who I want any old time. That is the ethos of our world. That lyric encapsulates how people think and live. It's not just teenagers. It's adults. People do not like being told how to live, being told that they are wrong, being told that they need to change. And yet that is exactly what Jesus says. You are wrong. You do need to change. Because how you're going about your life is diametrically opposed to how God made you to live. opposed to the love that lies behind God's law. The love He has for His people and the love He wants His people to show. Jesus declares a new and a better kingdom. One that is characterized by love. One that is characterized by justice. One that is characterized by holiness. And since we sometimes think that holiness is a bad thing, Remember, Paul said, joy in the Holy Spirit. Holiness and happiness are not fundamentally opposed. True happiness, anyway. In other words, this kingdom that Jesus is proclaiming is not like the ones that we're used to. It's not like the ones we see on the evening news. 
or the internet or anywhere else you happen to get your particular information. It involves this need to repent. Imagine for a moment, and this actually happens far too often, people fleeing Venezuela because it is unsafe, it is marked by hyperinflation, and all of the other problems that they have in Venezuela. Imagine that they go to another country, and this is more than theoretical, it's probably going to happen. Millions of Venezuelans may be dispossessed and go to other nations. But imagine if they then voted to do the same things that set up the problem in Venezuela. That would be not repenting. <laughs> that would be, not, that would be re not realizing that it was you who got you into the mess. Chavez got into power by the vote. We see a lot of people who, uh, in our own country, move from one state to another. They move away from places like New York and New Jersey because they complain about the high taxes, okay? And I completely understand. But then what do they do? They vote for the same policies that got them in trouble and made them want to leave New York and New Jersey, and they're trying to ruin Florida. That's not how they understand it, but that's basically what happens. Jesus is saying, in order to come into his kingdom, you have to leave behind the mess you made. You have to leave behind the values that created the mess you made of your life. When Keller talks about repentance, he, this is great, I think. It's very helpful. It's, sim it's simple. Repentance is turning from the things that Jesus hates to the things that he loves. I love it because it's simple and it's about Jesus. There are things that Jesus hates, and repentance is turning away from them. But it's also turning to the things that Jesus loves. Repentance only happens when we understand that God is merciful, that he is kind, and he's inclined to forgive. For instance, Joel 2, which if you can also read Isaiah 44, Jeremiah 3, Lamentations 3, similar things are said here. But Joel 2, even now, declares the Lord, okay? Judgment is coming in the form of armies in Joel 2. He says, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not simply your garments. Return to the Lord. Why? For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. And so Joel is reminding them of what, how God revealed himself to Moses on the mountain. That he's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's gracious and merciful. That's why you repent. Not because the armies are at the door. God is merciful. He was ready and willing to pull back those armies if only His people would have turned back to Him. We see a similar kind of comment in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume upon the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that... Here's the key part. 
God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. We repent not because there is a sword at our throats, but rather we repent because Jesus has gone to the cross revealing the mercy and kind-heartedness of God. Some of you are familiar with the book 1984. Winston has been imprisoned because he is a rebel. Because he has broken the laws of the state. And they want him to repent. And so what they do is they place a cage upon Winston's head. And they say, two plus two is five. And they threaten him that if he says two plus two is four, that they will release the rat that's on the other side of the cage to gnaw. They were threatening him with permanent damage and fear to get him to repent. <laughs> to, to go along with what they said math really was, as opposed to what math really is, essentially. That's what earthly kingdoms do. That is diametrically opposed to God's kingdom, where he, does, he doesn't put a cage on your face and threaten you but he says, look what, I, look what has happened to my son. See how much I love you, that I did not spare my only son, but gave him for my people so that they would repent. New citizenship require, requires a renouncing of our past allegiances. It's coming under the authority of an of a new entity, Jesus. New citizenship requires a renouncing of our unrighteousness, of our animosity, of our ingratitude towards God. There's a reason I had that John Newton quote in our reflection this morning, and I bring it up again here. None are so bad, but that the gospel affords them a ground of hope. None are so good as to have any just ground for hope without it. What does Newton mean? It means you can't be so bad that Jesus can't save you or won't save you. And you can't be good enough that Jesus doesn't have to. You're a mess, but Jesus saves. Or as Jack Miller put it, Cheer up, church. You're worse than you think you are. But cheer up, church. Jesus is greater than you think he is. All variations of the same thing. But I want you to understand that there is no entrance into an enjoyment of this kingdom that Jesus brings without repentance. And as Luther said in his uh, 95 Thesis, that refers to ongoing, lifelong repentance. Because we still continue to sin, we still continue to struggle. So citizenship in the kingdom of the beloved Son requires repentance. That's the second thing that really this passage boils down to. 
Let's move to the third thing that this passage boils down to, and that Jesus gives a second command, and that second command is believe. Be persuaded by. Put your confidence in this good news of the kingdom. And really, that's what he's getting at. We don't want to, sometimes we have a tendency to think of the good news simply as forgiveness, but Jesus is really communicating to us that the good news is about a kingdom. And therefore, it's about a king. It's a king who offers forgiveness, but he offers more than forgiveness. Okay? We don't, let's not reduce it down to that one thing, however important that one thing is, but remember that Jesus is offering us so much more in addition to that one thing, not in place of the one thing. Okay? So this means that we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king that God had promised in the Old Testament and the one that John the baptizer had testified about in his earthly ministry. Not only do we believe the testimony of John and the testimony of Isaiah and the other prophets, but we are to believe the Father's testimony. That he says that this Jesus is his beloved son. That Jesus is the son of God and he is the God-man who is, whom is well-pleasing in the Father's sight. Believe the Father's testimony about Jesus. We're to believe that Jesus was in fact tested and tempted by the evil one, but that he prevailed as a faithful son. So, all of that stuff that we have seen in the prior 13 verses, Mark wants us to understand that's part of what we are to believe about Jesus. We're to understand, brothers and sisters, that faith and repentance are not separated from one another. They're distinct from one another, but they're joined sort of hand in glove. In order to repent, you must believe. You must believe that His judgment is just if you're going to repent. You must also believe that your sin deserves judgment if you're going to repent. In other words, you need to believe that when God says the wages of sin is death, that that means your sin, not the other guy's. Not your enemy's sin. Your own too has earned the death sentence. And that God is right to declare that against you because your sin is rebelliousness and wickedness. We are to believe, however, that Jesus reveals His mercy by going to places like Galilee to save sinners. Galilee. The land that Solomon thought so little of that he gave it away to another king. And that king said, what a piece of junk. Okay, uh, Go back to 1 Kings and look it up. And that's essentially, in layman's terms, what King Hiram said. He felt a little betrayed when he went to Galilee. What a dump. Why are you giving me a dump? And you'll notice that the people in Jerusalem continued in Jesus' day to think very little of Galilee and particularly Nazareth. What a bunch of dumps. 
And yet, that's where Jesus went. To declare a message to those sinners. Because those people needed salvation. And just like God went and and rustled up the bushes for Adam and Eve, uh, so Jesus went and rustled the bushes in Galilee, and later he would rustle the bushes in Jerusalem looking for sinners to be saved. And he comes to places like Tucson. Tucson. Fifth poorest metropolitan area in this country. Fifth poorest county in this country. Um, We love Tucson, but a lot of people think Tucson's a joke. But God comes to Tucson to save sinners like us. That's how merciful he is. That's how kind he is. We're to believe that the kingdom of the beloved Son is more desirable than any other kingdom. And so if those people leave Venezuela, they're saying that I'm going someplace, I'm looking for someplace better than Venezuela. My father's family left Sicily. They were looking for someplace better than Sicily. Uh, They didn't want to go out of the frying pan and into the fire. And if your ancestors left someplace, um, according to their own will, not the will of someone else, presumably it was because they thought that was a better place. And we will only flee the kingdom of darkness when we believe that the kingdom of his beloved son is a better place. And so part of evangelism is convincing people it's a better place. Faith, as J.I. Packer said, abandons trust in ourselves and rests fully on Jesus who died and rose again for us. And I want to explain this, illustrate this with um, this fine person. How many of you have gone rappelling? Okay. Uh, a couple last month we talked about the the pain line in terms of evangelism. Well, when you rappel, there's sort of a pain line in your head. You know that little rope right there. You know that rope can hold you. But trusting that rope to hold you enough that you walk over the edge of that ledge is a different story. Because you're sitting there. And you look down and you go, whoa. In this case, I don't know what's there besides that, that water, but I'm sure there's a bunch of rocks. That water doesn't look all that deep because you can see some rocks in there. And that's what happens. You go and go, do I really want to do this? Am I sure this rope can hold me? And faith is when you step off the ledge and allow the rope to hold you. Faith in Christ is not just an intellectual assent that Jesus can save me. It's stepping over the edge so that Jesus is in fact 
saving you, just like the rope, in fact, holds you up. You actually have to trust Him. It's not faith, real faith, saving faith is not simply, ah, Jesus is the Son of God, cool. But it's, I need and rest upon the Son of God who came to save sinners. Edwards sort of said it in a different way when he talked about the excellency of God. It's one thing to to think about the sweetness of honey. It's another to taste the sweetness of honey. And real faith tests the sufficiency of Jesus. So citizenship in the kingdom of the beloved son requires trusting in that beloved son. So if we were to kind of wrap all of this up in a summary statement, it's that we receive the kingdom of the beloved son through faith and repentance. Or maybe we should add, we receive the blessings of the kingdom of the beloved son through faith and repentance. But if you're going to immigrate from one place to another, you must believe that your present life is pretty bad and that the new place will be significantly better. So much better that it can justify the pain that you experience in trying to get there. The danger that you may encounter in trying to get there. And when you get there, you will learn a new way of life that fits that new place. Jesus had come to declare a better kingdom. One with God in charge. One that was characterized by peace, joy, and righteousness. And to enter that kingdom, you must believe that it exists and have faith in Jesus as the only way into that kingdom. There's no scale in a wall. There's no dig in a tunnel. There's only through Jesus, the door. To enter, you must believe and repent. In light of the faith that you have, you turn around, you forsake your former way of life that got you in that bad spot in the first place. And know that Jesus has a significantly better way of life for you and His kingdom. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, that Jesus didn't send a telegram. But that He came and He preached and He died and He rose again all because He loved that kingdom and He loved His people. And now He sends His people to go out and give the same message. Father, help us to be about talking about that kingdom. About sharing that there's a better place. Um, We're... Justice reigns instead of injustice. Where love really does win instead of hatred. 
where there is a happiness that cannot be destroyed at all. Help us to believe those things and to share those things. In Christ's name, amen.